Hello, I'm Zoe Pollock, Artistic Director of Byron Writers Festival. You're listening to Love and Wonder, a series of collected conversations recorded live at the 2022 Byron Writers Festival, held on the lands of the Arakwal people of the Bundjalung Nation. This session, titled On Stillness, features authors Paul Callahan, Christine Jackman and Indira Naidu in conversation with Anne-Maria Nicholson. Hi everybody, as a, an Aboriginal man from Warramai country, I'm out of country and I'm visiting this beautiful place, so I wish to acknowledge this beautiful country that we're on, and for me it's a, a very sacred and spiritual thing. So when I come into country, I don't see country like you do. What I do is I see the footsteps of those that have been here for 100,000 years, and I feel them, and I listen to them, and I say hello to them, and I ask permission to be here, which I did. And hopefully they let me stay, which they seem to have, so that's really good. <laughs> so I think about those old ones and how they cared for this place for a very, very long time. They danced for this place, they sang for this place, they had ceremony for this place, and they loved this place. So I think of those old ones and I pay my respects to them, and also to the elders in the community right now. And may their wisdom be with us, today particularly, so that we can infuse our next generation with the wisdom of those old people and help them create a, a great future for all of us. So I acknowledge country and my elders past and present and acknowledge also the stars and the waters. Thank you, Paul. And Paul um, will be discussing today his recently released book written with Uncle Paul Gordon, which is The Dreaming Path. We have here also Christine Jackman, who's an award-winning journalist, author and communications consultant. Her latest book, Turning Down the Noise, is a quest for calm in the modern world. And Indira Naidu is one of Australia's most popular broadcasters and authors and the host of ABC Radio's Weekend Nightlife. And she's also an ambassador for Sydney's homeless crisis centre, The Wayside Chapel. The Space Between the Stars is her latest book. And I'm Anne-Maria Nicholson. I'm an author, journalist and community activist in line with our Radical Hope theme of this festival. I'm a great believer in people power. And I've just had my third novel, Poker Protocol, released this week. <laughs> <laughs> so, in a busy world, many of us are craving stillness. How can we slow down and appreciate the wonders and joys of the world? Many of us are struggling with time and how to switch off. And how can we take the time to experience life at a slower pace? So, these three writers who are probably three of the busiest people we know, <laughs> have some answers for us. And I'd like to start the discussion with a quote I read in Christine Jackman's book, attributed to a French mathematician and theologian, Blaise Pascal, 300 years ago. All men's miseries derive from not being able to sit quiet in a room alone. Christine, maybe you can start off by telling us the significance of this to you. Yeah, well, I'd make an observation about that quote. So that was a couple of centuries ago, but think about it, think about it in the modern day. We, we live in the era of the selfie, so we're supposed to be self-obsessed, and in many ways we are. And yet the last thing many people want to do is be left alone with themselves. You know, it, we, we immediately go to this, and that's not us. But And, and there was a, a wonderful 
piece of research that actually embodied that quote that was done, I think it was at Stanford, but I may be wrong, everything happens at Stanford, where they got 24 men, 24 women, they um, administered a small electric shock, enough to be painful, and they said to them, you know, would you, do you want to have that shock again? No, we don't want to have that shock again. Then they put each of those people into a, an empty room no phones, nothing. And all they had to do was sit in that room for 15 minutes. And 18 of the 24 men and six of the 24 women, so a quarter of the women, three quarters of the men, administered another shock to leave the room for 15 minutes. Now, I would say that people have asked me, why, did, why do you think the gender difference? And I'd say, because probably those women, a lot of them would be mothers, who went, you know what, I'm just a little nap. <laughs> <laughs> but it says something, doesn't it, that we don't actually, for all of the curation of self we do, we don't like to be alone anymore. We actually panic. Something's going on with our brains about why we need constant stimulation. And at the same time, anxiety levels are going up, insomnia levels are going up, depression's going up. So that's my jumping point, was because I was one of those people. I need to be busy, I, but I'm unhappy... I can't relax, I wasn't sleeping, I had a successful job, and yet I didn't feel successful. Mm. So um, that was the beginning of my search for, to turn down the noise, to see what would happen if I took some of the stimulation out of my own life. And Indira, what about yourself? Do you like being alone? <laughs> <laughs> what Christine's described is exactly what my life was, and, and a lot of it probably still is being on book tour, but... It, it very much was this sense everything is urgent or everything has to happen yesterday. And when you work in media as well, and radio particularly, when it's by the second, you get even more caught up in that way of living your life and living the hours in your day. And I have to admit, if you know, it, for most of us, it takes a, a big event, usually a health issue or a death, in, and in, in my case, the death of my sister, that makes you stop in your tracks. I, I was forced to be still because the grief was so mm. overwhelming. And for those of you who've been through big griefs in your life, you are aware that it can be quite difficult to find the language to talk to other people about your grief. It can be difficult for other people to know the right words to say. And for me, that actually forced me to spend more time on my own and more time in nature because this amazing tree that I discovered in the Royal Botanic Gardens in Sydney, a 150-year-old Moreton Bay fig tree, when I was doing a walk one morning that has become my spirit guide through all of this, it's still, trees are still, they don't move, they don't go anywhere. And so when I wanted to be with this tree, I had to be still with it. We couldn't go for a walk together. We had to sit in stillness. And it taught me how to quieten myself down. Hmm. I thought being still was being uh, not achieving, not being productive. Exactly. <laughs> and what I realised being still, being taught by the tree how to be still and be present, was that that quietening down... I heard what was actually going on inside me, inside my head, inside my heart, inside my soul. And it was quite interesting, actually. You know, I think we've all also been sold that fallacy that there's nothing really interesting that we have to say to ourselves. Mm. And in those moments of stillness, uh, which is where most of this book came from, 
um, these were the thoughts that unfolded out of me and, and ended up in the book. So stillness for me was a way for me to um, hear myself, probably mm. for the first time. And um, Paul, you were Mr. Successful in your early 30s, had the world at your feet, the world was your oyster. Something happened to you to make you stop? Yes, yeah, so my story is pretty atypical of most Aboriginal people if you get to hear their story, and that is I grew up as an outsider in every part of my life, so I wasn't, I was too white to be black and I was too black to be white and I didn't fit in, I was marginalised. So that meant as I went through adolescence and my adult years, I just needed to be wanted and to be popular and to fit in and not be marginalised anymore. But the harder I tried, the more I realised I was an outsider. So I did all the things you do to try and be successful. So by the time I was 35, I had a degree in commerce, a diploma in surveying, a diploma in drafting, a wonderful marriage, three kids, two cars, a marketing job at a uni and a lecture in economics which looks like I'm very successful as an Aboriginal person, but I had a breakdown. And the breakdown was as dark as it gets. I laid in a fetal position for three months and cried. The medical system told me I would never recover. So I didn't want to leave, I didn't want to have a, I didn't want to be an emotional burden on my wife and my three young kids. So I thought the easiest way to fix this is to kill myself. And so I went down the road one day to do that and as I was about to do it, a random thought came into my head and it said, no, you don't have to do this. There's another way. You can actually prove all the medicos wrong and heal yourself and use that learning to help others. And that's what I've dedicated my life to. And, and thankfully, I'm here today to share that. And so in terms of being alone for the first 35 years of my life, it was terrifying because I needed to be with people because I needed to be liked. But then I was introduced to culture because on the east coast of Australia, I was told culture was dead and that I couldn't find it even though I knew I was black. I didn't know what that meant. But I was taken bush and I was given all these gifts. And the gifts that I'll be sharing over the rest of this session were just so amazing that I'm able to share them with the world. And so now I actually love being alone. It's a wonderful thing. Christine, the turning point for you, with all that busyness in your life, was when your father unexpectedly became very ill and made you stop. But even on the way to see him, you were doing 100 tasks in the car with your friend because you still couldn't really stop. But, but tell me about that process. Yeah, so I was a successful... I'd left journalism. I was a successful, I suppose, communications consultant, earning more money than I thought I was going to. We were living in Sydney on the harbour... And, you know, the real measure of success is you have two phones. You, you're too important just to have one. Um, I used to get greeted at the, you know, like the Qantas Club. The security guys knew me by name because I was travelling so much. And I was actually on the road um, representing some big businesses. They had to meet with, oddly enough, um, Pauline Hanson about something, standard sort of trying to influence government um, decisions about something. And when, we, when I got the call that Dad had actually fallen badly um, and I just I went into problem solving mode which is I, I got this I can do this it just needs another to-do list so I you know I had to get him moved into the into a different hospital I had to get him in an ambulance to move him I had to find a surgeon who would do the the surgery you know add him to the list um, while also managing my boss who was going to this meeting and um, I did it 
I did it. You know, it was another tick. That was a successful day in in corporate, you know, success land. Um, but I'd say, Amory, that one of the things that the one of the turning points for me was that um, we had lost our friend um, Mark Colvin, the PM host that many of you will remember. Beautiful voice, one of the most remarkable journalists. In fact, two of us worked with him. Yes. Dear mm. and myself worked with him. Now, this part's actually not in the book because at the time when I was writing, it was quite, it was very personal. But we had, I was working in, on federal budget um, with one of my bosses who was uh, not a politician but was asked to comment regularly on these sorts of issues. I was in um, Canberra when we got word that Mark was in, was unlikely to live for very much longer and his friends were told, come back as soon as you can. And I flew back um, and the morning, which was a, weather was a lot like this in Sydney, we, we went to um, Prince of Wales Hospital in Randwick in Sydney. We arrived in, the, in his, his room and I walked in. We'd made so many plans to catch up. Um, you know, we'll have dinner, we'll do this, we'll do that. Every, always too busy. And Mark was actually, you know, really close to death. Um, we got... I got to say, you know, your friends love you. We are all here. Australia... You've done so much for, you know, Australian audiences, but it's OK to go now. Um, and we said our goodbyes. And while we were waiting outside, because his family were with him, it, Mark passed away. And then we went outside of the hospital... Beautiful day, people still getting on there. I remember standing there and thinking, I've got to go back to work now. And people were getting on with their work, their businesses and that sort of thing. And then three weeks later, Dad was diagnosed with mm. terminal melanoma. And I said earlier in, a session, in another session, I thank Mark regularly because Mark opened my eyes to the fact that if you don't make a change, you know, if, if, you, if you're not present with your family, with your, with your loved ones, with with the people that matter, doing the work that you think matters. It can be gone tomorrow. You know, you only get a finite time with each other. Um, and so when Dad got that diagnosis, my employer was great. They said, you know, you can take the time off when you need to. But I realised, no, 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 no. I need the time now. I don't want to be by his bedside, you know, at the last minute. I want to be walking this journey with him. And again, the idea of being present, that comes with stillness and, and the comfort of not problem solving, of just being mm. there. Mm. And Indira, you mentioned before the suicide of your dear youngest sister, Stargirl, who you call, and your other sister's dream catcher, the three of you, and write so touchingly about your lives of, on the road together with your parents and you're very, your naughtiness, you're all very naughty. Mm -hmm. But Stargirl's leaving the world like she did uh, was so shocking, so sudden, so unexpected, and it stopped you in your tracks, yeah? It did. A lot of what Paul was sharing with us in the way that his life was outwardly looking, uh, Stargirl's life was a lot like that as well. She was a very successful journalist, a Walkley winning journalist. She had a wonderful husband and daughter, um, a master's degree. Uh, she was um, had helped two premiers uh, become premier in Victoria. She basically had ticked any sort of box when we were children that we would have thought, wow, that is going to be a great life. But of course, um, you know, it's, 
it may look like that on paper, but that wasn't how she was feeling inside. And those struggles that she had with her mental health just got worse and worse. And despite all our attempts, we, we really couldn't um, reach her in the end. And that lockdown period in Melbourne that first time was a very difficult time for people. Any, everyone had uh, anxiety issues. Anything, you know, would set you off. So it was a very difficult time for her. She used swimming to help her manage her mental health. And unfortunately, during that lockdown, they closed all the public pools in Melbourne. So we knew it wasn't going to be a good time for her. So in a lot of ways, she did try to connect with nature and she swam and she found those times uh, to try to manage her mental health, but she didn't do everything that she should have. She didn't really get the help she needed. She didn't you know, follow up on, with the medication. So it was a very difficult time to lose a sister as well because of the closure of borders. I was across the border in, in Sydney getting down for the, the funeral. Only 20 people were allowed. A lot of family members couldn't physically be there. And then we couldn't stay with her family because there were restrictions on numbers in the family home. So it just made a, a terrible situation so much worse. And so when we came back to Sydney, uh, I went straight back into work because again, there weren't, wasn't really alternatives. I couldn't take time off, there was nowhere to go. I couldn't go for a, a holiday down the beach or away in the mountains. There wasn't any op op option really. So I went back to work and uh, carried on doing my radio show. But what I kept, kept on doing are these walks to this Moreton Bay fig tree. And I found that that time being with it and being quiet and still with it, what it also opened up is all the wonders of nature that were around me at the same time that I would have been too busy. I knew in the past I was too busy to notice. I noticed the fig birds uh, mating and cooing above me in the branches. I noticed all the feathers falling around me. I noticed the weeds and the cracks along the footpaths walking to the tree, the clouds, uh, just the way the air and the, the warmth of the sun felt on my face, things like that that I had never noticed, you know, as an adult really, that deeply. And that sort of quiet and stillness started to help me heal. I mean, this was the extraordinary thing. I've always been connected with nature through my gardening work, but I didn't really think that nature could help you heal through such a big traumatic loss, like a sister um, taking her life. But from watching nature, from being still with it, being present with it, its wonders and its beauty and the continuity of life. It showed me the cycles of life and death and renewal and loss, decomposition, cycles that we are part of as humans. We're not separate from this. We are part of nature. Again, we can forget in the city. We do think we're at the apex and we're running the show. <laughs> we're not running the show. Nature in the world, the sun, everything just carries on the tides, the clouds, whatever is going on in our life, those things stay constant. And that reminder really helped me. It really helped put my loss and my grief in perspective and that this was something that everyone is going to go through in some way in their life. We're all going to love and lose uh, and it's good to be aware of it, to accept that. And nature around me, you know, was showing me that. There's a little bit I want to read. I don't know if now's a good time just to talk about the that wonderful stillness. Before Stargirl's death froze me in my tracks, I'd been too busy doing to be fully aware of the tiny moments of wonder unfurling around me. Tree time is changing that. As soon as I step into my tree's shadow, a cloak of stillness slips over me. It's like sleeping fully awake. 
there's a hypnotizing tranquility under its green chandelier. The stillness becomes its own radiance. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Indira. And um, that tree has become quite a shrine in Sydney, <laughs> and Indira can't get near her tree anymore. I can't. Because everyone else is there, because she's captured everyone's imagination. It's for really beautiful. An outpouring of grief. Yeah, hundreds of people have been to visit the tree. <laughs> And uh, I was actually walking there a couple of days ago and there were three or four people with cameras taking photo of the tree, which was but quite amazing to watch uh, as well and, and really lovely. And so many people have shared stories who've read the book about visiting the tree and how the tree has become a special place for them because I call it my tree, but I want it to be everyone else's tree as well. Mm. And someone said to me, what is it at the moment that we're having this moment in time where we're really obsessing about trees? There's a, a tree series on the ABC and a number of very successful books have been uh, used trees as their centrepiece. And look, I don't think we ever moved away from it. When I go back to my childhood, those faraway tree stories, every, everything had trees. We climbed mm. trees, we built cubby houses. Trees were these wonderful places. And I think as we grew older, we were torn away from these places. You know, we were told not to play in the dirt and walk on the grass or pick that flower or climb that tree. And I think what's happened with me is I've just come full circle. I've just come back to what I knew as a child, mm. that feathers were wondrous the things, that you could sit there and watch ants for hours, you know, and how they carried these huge sticks and leaves and watch the clouds and imagine the different faces and shapes and animals that you'd see in them. I could do that for hours as a child yeah. and get so much joy and the day would just disappear and there would be no sense of time or anxiety about something else that I had to do. And I think Dira, I'll just move on a little bit. Yeah. But I, I, we are going to return to trees with, with Christine soon, but I want, want to go into Paul first because the dreaming path, it covers a lot of what... Christine and Indira have said to, in today's session, it's like a handbook of knowledge, of, of ancient knowledge. And um, Paul, you talk of law, L-O-R-E, Aboriginal, as opposed to L-A-W, non-Aboriginal, connectivity to nature. But tell us a little bit about that pathway and what is really a book of knowledge? Well, I'll get to that in a second, but to... To set the scene, the Western world has lots of good things. I mean, hot water of a cold morning, pretty good. Being able to talk to loved ones far away, telecommunications, good. Hopping in the car, getting down to Coles at 7 o'clock because you've got no milk for your coffee, good stuff. But there's a lot to be learned in other places, including from Aboriginal people. And so our law, L-O-R-E, is an English word, shortened for folklore. But law in our way means knowledge. And there's a lot of knowledge we can pick up everywhere. So what can we pick up from elders? That's what I've shared in this book. And one of the phrases I use right across Australia that taps into what my two colleagues have talked about is that they say, when we leave this world behind, all we leave behind is our story. So make it the best story possible. You can't take the Jillawas, that's the toilets. You can't take the cars, you can't take the money. All you take and all you leave behind is your story. So make it the best story possible. And this is the thing. For every one of you, are you living the best story possible? My observation is most people aren't. They're living the expectations of other people's stories. When I had my breakdown, I realised as I healed that I'd spent my entire life trying to be all things to all people at all times. And at no time did I live my story. The question to ask yourself, am I living a good story or am I living 
a busy story. And there's the problem. Most people equate a good story to I'm really, really busy. And what you're hearing is no, that's not a good story at all. I see people in the workplace wearing anxiety like a, a badge of honour saying, I'm more stressed than you. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, but I'm more stressed. And you watch me go harder tomorrow and I'll get more. And then you see people saying, yeah, but I've got back to back. So, oh, yeah, I've got more than you. And so on your tombstone when you're 100, do you want it to say, Jane had more back-to-backs than anyone else I can think of. <laughs> Sounds silly, but that's what we're doing. And so that's a big problem because in Aboriginal ways, our boss was nature. Mother Nature is our boss. There's a big story that I'm actually going to tell tomorrow morning if you come along, teaser. Uh, creation story. And part of the creation story is humans were created last. And we were created last for a reason. It's to realise that nature are all our older brothers and sisters and if we want to learn, we need to go out and sit with our older brothers and sisters and be still. And if you do this, if you're brave enough to sit still and go a little bit mad for about two hours, then you'll come good and you'll start getting insights from your brothers and sisters in nature. Because the Western world's boss isn't nature. The Western world's boss that you've got a big problem with is the clock. As soon as you wake up, it's there yelling at you. When you get a red light, you're going, oh my God, it's not the red light. The red light doesn't care about you either, just on the quiet. It's the clock. And then you rush through the day with your back-to-backs. Then you rush home. And then you rush through, and I mean, I don't know what you're going to... Oh, maths is coming up, so you'll have something to watch soon. I mean, Beauty and the Geek's gone. What else have we got? So you're you're rushing with the clock and so our way is to connect back with nature. So this is going to be a very quick way to do that. So this is going to require a bit of courage from you all. I want you to all close your eyes and take a deep breath in and out. And there you go, we're being still. Just in and out, notice your breath. And as you're doing that, I want you to think about yesterday and revisit all the beautiful things you ate all the beautiful things that you've eaten yesterday. Retaste your breakfast, morning tea, lunch, afternoon tea, dinner, supper, how good is all that? Just relive all that and when you do that, give thanks because everything you've eaten comes from Mother Earth and give thanks for that, comes from the mother. And then with your eyes closed, I want you to revisit everything that you saw with your eyes yesterday that was beautiful all the things that you saw that were beautiful. It could have been a flower, it could have been a loved one's face, lots of things that are beautiful. And just embrace that because all those things that you've seen, they're all connected to the earth as well. Without the earth, those things aren't there. Then I want you to think about your nose and think about how beautiful smell is. What are the things that you can remember from yesterday that you smelt that was beautiful? It could be coffee, it could be breakfast, it could be toast could be perfume, could be all sorts of things, a baby, a loved one. All those things are connected to the earth. All those things are connected to nature. And then notice your skin. All the things that yesterday you felt on your skin could have been a breeze, could have been the sun, could have been sitting in a nice comfy chair. All those things that you can feel with your skin, they're all connected to nature. And then the last thing I want you to think about is your ears, all the things that you can hear from yesterday that were beautiful, a voice, a song, a bird singing, rustling in the leaves, ocean, all those things are part of nature. 
So think about all the things that you've tasted, all the things that you've seen, all the things that you've smelled, all the things that you've felt, all the things that you heard. They're all part of nature. And they're all there for you. All there for you. You don't have to do anything except enjoy them. And now a deep breath in and deep breath out. Then you can come back to us and you've touched stillness there for a little while. And that's what our culture is all about every day. And I call that the tense exercise, by the way, in the book. So T stands for tongue, E stands for eyes, N stands for nose, S stands for skin, E stands for ears. Every night you do that just before or just as you're lying to bed, you'll get to sleep before you get to N because you'll start reliving all those beautiful things. Thank you, Paul. Christine, your, one of your escapes, one of your survival techniques was to travel really halfway across the world to see a tree. Tell us, and also you're, you're a journalist and an author, but you dabbled with poetry, you were so moved. So I'm wondering if you can give a little bit of context to that and then read a little bit of your poem. Okay, so when I first left my big job and I was, you know, we were moving back to Brisbane, I, I didn't know what I was looking for. I just knew I felt overwhelmed. I, I knew that I was too busy and I was sick of feeling that way. So I decided I needed to research what this silence thing is because I really felt drawn to it. And one of the things I discovered was that there was a place called One Square Inch of Silence, which is in the Ho River Valley of the Olympic National Park in Pacific Northwest of the United States. And it is one of the very few um, remaining places in the US and actually isn't anymore because of... Um, I, I think I talk about it in the book, but that um, you can be for 15 minutes and not hear a man-made sound. There were, in 2005, when it was declared one square inch of silence, uh, less than a dozen in the continental US where you could be for 15 minutes and not have the sound interrupted by either traffic noise, aircraft noise, mining noise, people. The Ho River Valley is, has got one of the highest rainfalls in the United States, which explains why there aren't there many, many people there, and it is the most divine rainforest, temperate rainforest. Those of you who know the Twilight movies, it was filmed in those, you know, those really big, 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 big trees. Um, so I decided that I needed to meet the fellow, who the acoustic ecologist who named it one uh, square inch of silence, and I wanted to hike there. And... I did that by myself in the rain, which is very unusual for me. Um, I'm, not a, I'm not a hiking girl, but I am a bush girl now. Before I do, I, would wanna, I just want to make one little observation because what doing that also taught me, as divine as it was to be there with these enormous trees that had, that were, had been on Earth for longer than white people had landed in this country, had been on Earth in some cases longer than white people had been in the US, yeah, it, it made me realise that, you know, nature endures, which is what I think Paul was saying. But it also made me realise, and I wanted to say this when Indira was talking about the people going to her tree, we are such capitalistic people that we just decide, okay, I want to have silence, I'm going to hike to that place, or I'm going to go to that tree. And what I, I think one of the messages that we've all learned in different ways, in fact, the exercise that Paul just did with us, is that you can have it. You don't have to take a pill. You don't have to do a certain course. You can go out there right now and walk on the beach without your earpods and just be still with yourself. 
It doesn't have to be. It's not the tree. It's not the particular tree. It was Indira spending time with the tree in stillness. But it wasn't that special tree. You can find your own special tree in the backyard. That said, <laughs> that said, I went to, when I hiked the high rainforest and it was raining and, and so forth, there was a beautiful Sitka spruce, enormous, one of those trees that you can't see the top of. And it had been split in its roots so you could actually stand up inside its, um, inside its um, trunk. And it was raining, so I spent a bit of time just inside the tree sitting. And just as a reminder, this was Trump era, and also you can do the maths on who was in charge here, because there's a reference. Um, in a forest in a secret grove, there's a, there is a Sitka spruce who can teach you all you need to know about love. She is waiting for you. I can take you partway there, but it is best for you to arrive on your own with raindrops across your cheeks and nose like freckles and fingers blue with cold and wondering, why am I here? And how much further? And am I too old and tired to be doing this anyway? And you can crawl beneath her, right inside her, where, is, where it's dry and almost warm. And near this tree's big heart, her roots embrace you like a mother. She will not ask you why it took so long, or remind you that she's been here 200 years or more. She will not ask you what your plans are or where you're going or what you wish to be, because you are enough, right here, right now, in this secret forest. And you can stay with her as long as you wish, or not long at all. Sometimes I wonder if we lined up all the world's leaders you know the ones, and took them one by one into this wet, waiting forest to sit in the heart of a tree, would the world be a more peaceful place afterwards? I think so. But for now, for now, it is enough to tell you of the Sitka spruce, who can teach you all you need to know about love, and to know that she is waiting for you, for me, for all of us. Thank you, Christine. Indira, before you wrote this book, you wrote the other, the edible balcony, which I um, bought and tried to copy you with my balcony. <laughs> and I could not get 70 kilograms of food off my balcony, I have to tell you. <laughs> but um, you write in, in your new book uh, how, and you referred to it earlier, how you are, are seeing things in nature for the first time, like feathers, like birds. But also, with the help of guides that you've adopted in the last little while, you went round the inner part of Sydney and discovered all the food that was just sitting there, growing out of brick walls, mm -hmm. etc. cetera. And um, again, it's because you are now an observer. So if there is a, um, another lockdown and Coles and Woolies are closed, <laughs> can you feed yourself in the middle of Sydney and how would you do that? Um. Look, maybe for a couple of hours, uh, <laughs> I, I have enough food. What was lovely about, you know, that, and there weren't a lot of um, positives uh, that came out of those lockdowns, but what was lovely for me is that it, it forced me to look at that two kilometres, five kilometres around me in, mm -hmm. with different eyes. And rather than feeling restricted and trapped and loss of freedoms as I began that time, I saw the wealth and the beauty and the life that was everywhere. And one of the things that 
my eyes uh, became aware of were the weeds. There were weeds in every crack, uh, in every little gutter and footpath, coming out of little cracks in the brickwork and the mortar. And I realised that, you know, I'm fortunate enough I can see the, the, the opera house as well from where I live, and that it was white and pristine and gleaming, gleaming. And I'd always thought that that was a beautiful thing, and it is a beautiful thing, but I realised it's only because of our constant cleaning and scrubbing that the opera house is like that. And if we really left it, nature would take back the city. Of course it would. Everything would be covered with beautiful mosses and creepers, and that would be a thing of its own beauty. And these weeds suddenly reminded me that rather than see them as weeds, they were survivors in a, in a way that that was what I was trying to become through my grief and my healing process. And I realised that these weeds were showing me that you didn't need much. Just a little crack with a little drop of water and a little bit of sun was enough to give life to a living creature. And here was I thinking I didn't have enough. I didn't have the resources or the support I needed to get myself through. And these weeds were showing me not only were they having life, a wonderful life, they were giving life. They were giving nutrients to me. You know, I found on this weed walk that I did with uh, Diego Benetto, wonderful, the weedy one he calls himself, and he's got his own book out. You have to check that out as well, Eat Weeds. We did a walk from my house to the tree and we found 25 different edible weeds just growing in the cracks, under trees, creeping uh, along the railings, and they were all delicious and free and nutritious and before I'd just seen them and trampled all over them and now those plants I see quite differently and I was very upset the other day the council cleaned up all the weeds and I was really upset and I thought well, that that could have been dinner for someone um so it, it reminded me too that it's it's the way you look at something you know um in Italy, they don't see weeds as weeds the way we do. Weeds are free, delicious food. You know, they go collecting brambles and, and blackberries and, and mushrooms and rocket uh, along railway tracks and things like that. They, they don't have that same view. So that connection with these living creatures in that small area in the urban setting for me opened up my eyes to the real value that we ignore most of the time and that those creatures could show me that there is a lot of living to have if you're just prepared to be still and, and look at it. So I want to talk a little bit, and we have to keep our answers a wee bit shorter because we're running out of time and Paul has got a very special uh, exercise at the end that we're going to enjoy. Uh, but I just want to talk a little bit about high-tech and, uh, Christine, you quote that um, 10 to 62% of respondents <laughs> to a survey admitted to checking their phones during sex. <laughs> I'm not going to ask anything, anything personal, but Paul... <laughs> <laughs> no pressure. What does this say? Well, I had to call my wife to see if it was OK. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, sorry, Dale, that's not true. I just thought that's a good yarn. <laughs> and, um, and what was the question? Uh, <laughs> so, people are so busy, there are no boundaries to when you're not going to check your devices and your social media. And, in fact, another quote, Christine, I'm very grateful for your quotes. Um, uh, advice for a happy adolescence. Put down the phone turn off the laptop and do something, anything, that does not involve a screen. 
Mm-hmm. So just to jump in there, it, it's bigger than that. In 1900, the knowledge of the world doubled every 100 years. In 1945, it was doubling every 25 years. Right now, the knowledge in the world doubles every 12 hours. Every 12 hours, because everyone's fixated with data. Data gets converted into information. Information may or may not be converted into knowledge, which is then what we see on our phones. The problem is, from a blackfella perspective, is knowledge is not being transferred into wisdom. Mm-hmm. So we've got an overabundance of data and information and a little bit of knowledge, but we've got an underabundance, we've got a drought of wisdom. And in my way, the definition of wisdom is knowledge that's used in a good way to help country and also our people. So there lies the problem. We're all just being consumed with busyness rather than putting it down and consuming wisdom. And so it's a challenge for all of us to start being harvesters of wisdom and creators of wisdom, not creators of data. We can get that in bucket loads. It's about wisdom. Christine, you have um, children, and I do, and I've got a young grandson who's two who knows very well how to use an iPhone and iPad, so I have to say. Um, what... What do people do? What do you do? You deny children? Do you deny adolescents of that? How do you control that? Oh gosh, that's the big. I think that's one of the biggest questions. When I researched this, I almost, I, I considered writing a second book just about screens, getting screens out of schools. I don't want to sound like a luddite, but I think that it's a bit like um, I think what we're seeing, and certainly the news out of. The Silicon Valley is starting to confirm this with a number of people, and you can read about... Please read about this in the book. Um, the number of experts from Silicon Valley who have left to bell the cat on the fact that this is like the tobacco industry. What they're doing... I mean, they, they harvest the best and brightest out of what's the Stanford Behavioural Lab, which is a, to, um, to teach... To get to... Sorry, to design apps and design devices that operate, yes, like pokey machines, so that you are lighting up the same circuitry in your brains when you are, when you are engaging, whether it's social media and getting likes, that's, there's a reason for those likes. It, hits, it lights up your, cortisol, uh, your dopamine. Um, if they hold things back so that you feel anxious. And our children, whose neural pathways are developing are exposed to this more than anybody. And I think if you are a parent and you feel like you're failing at this, which I do, I have two teenage boys, the one thing I'd like to say is, having talked to people, um, it's not just an individual thing. We all know our kids shouldn't be on screens as much, but we are fighting um, an industry that's better at it than we are. And plus, the schools that have incorporated this stuff, it's a bit like saying, you know, I was the beginning of bring your own device when the kids were really little, and, hey, you get an iPad when you're five. And suddenly what happened is it's a bit like... I I make it the comparison with... Imagine your kid comes home or you have to buy your kid a pokey machine and you put it in their bedroom and the school says, but it's okay. I mean, they're not playing the pokies. They have to do their homework on it, but it's up to you to stop them playing all those other things. That is what's happening. If you talk to schools, a lot of them know it. A lot of the... You cannot get answers on, on a lot of the times what data is being scraped 
by Google Classrooms. You can't get answers on what Apple is doing with its Apple Teacher Program. It's happened so quickly that we can't keep up with it. Um, but we do know enough now, because neuroscience has only really developed in the last 10 to 20 years. We know what's going on in the brain now. So I think we all need to sort of brace ourselves that um, there is going to be regulatory change. And I may yet write that book. I'm not sure. Um, Indira, you at the front line of journalism see this all the time. The, the absolute avalanche of information that comes at you, it comes at, at all of us in one degree or another. Um, and Twitter, and and for women journalists, the, it's a platform for incredible bullying, mm. and um, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's good and it's bad. But tell me your experience and what is your take, and and do you switch off from it? Do you have do you have downtime? What do you do? This experience in the last couple of years, lockdown was really good for me. That time I spent on my own, alone, still quiet, meditating, walking, just watching, being. I've come back into, you know, daily news with quite a different lens now. And things have to be pretty special to take me away from nature now, you know. Um, and this is why an event like this is perfect. You know, we're talking books and we're basically out in nature at the same time. Uh, so for me... Being out in nature, being outside, outdoors, is the antidote, uh, I think, for everything that really ails us. And there's a wonderful chapter where I go puddle jumping with my granddaughter, Abby, and I buy her some gumboots and I let her go and find the, the puddles for us. And we just spend the afternoon, and again, never done that since I was a little kid, jumping in all these wonderful puddles. And again, the joy that comes from that experience... I mean, Twitter just can't compete with that. I'd rather puddle jump any time uh, than scroll through Instagram or, or Twitter. And I think once you allow people... And, and it's sad, we almost have to give ourselves permission to do these things because we think that's not a real thing that an adult should do. I went kite flying for a day and what a wondrous thing that is to do. Again, something I hadn't done since I was a child. These are all simple pleasures. They're often free pleasures. They're easy to do. They're accessible. We can all do them wherever we live. I think that when you're aware that the joys out there are, are just so much more incredible than anything a device can offer you, uh, I think it's, it's, you know, it's an easy one. Thank you. And Paul, is it time? Yep, I think so, because then we'll have some time left for some questions for the mob here. So I'm going to do something, hopefully you'll think's pretty cool in a minute. Yeah. But to bring that in, everything in nature, in our way, everything has spirit. So the trees, the birds, the fish, even the rocks have spirit. The rocks fall pregnant, they have babies they die like all things, everything. Now that means that when you're out there in nature and what my wonderful panellists have said is you're never alone. Never ever do you have to feel alone, ever. We feel that at times but in our way you're never alone. In fact when you're out in the bush you're surrounded by mob and if you can somehow believe that then you'll have this connection where you'll never ever feel lonely because they're all our family. They're all our family and so the thing to think about that is, in our way, we are all conceived in love. We're all born in love. We all live in love. 
We are surrounded by love and we go back to love. What that tells you from our way is that you're perfect the way you are. You don't have to do anything to prove yourself to anybody. You don't have to be busy. All you have to do is walk your story and be you. And so part of that is I need now five able-bodied volunteers up the front. You're not going to have to carry me any there, anywhere, so don't get scared. <laughs> so Come on, you all love audience front. participation. Participation. <laughs> we got one, two, three, four, five. Dear men, you've let me down. Do we want some affirmative action Reese, here? Do we want to make, make men come you, up? You can have a few more. <laughs> Rhonda and Penny, you can come. Yes. Interesting. One, two, one, two, three. All right, so to set the scene, the people up front are going to dance for me. <laughs> Actually, they're not going to dance for me. They're going to dance for you. So you need to find a bit of space. And while you're doing that, face the audience. And then you'll have to face me as I explain it. Then you'll face the audience and you'll get dizzy and fall over. So the first time I danced was the day of my 40th birthday. The day of my breakdown was the day of my 35th birthday. So these milestones happened on my birthday. The first time I danced, there was an audience of a 1,000 people. And an elder came in and said, how are you going there, brother? And I said, I am shitting myself. <laughs> and he laughed and he said, what's wrong? And I said, look at the people. And he said, what are you worried about? And I said look at them all and he said who are you dancing for and I said 2,000 sets of 2,000 eyes and he said I don't know why I bother taking you bush and teaching you stuff this was 25 years ago and I got all sooky like, <laughs> oh this is this is my idol here and he thinks I don't listen and he said what's up there in the trees and I said oh the wind because when we do a big corroboree the wind comes in because the spirits come in and you don't have to believe it but if you ever watch us dance you'll see this big wind coming. It's the spirits coming in because we've remembered them and they're happy. And I said, oh, that's the spirits. And he said, that's who you're dancing for. He said, don't worry about the other 100 dancers. There was 100 of us. He said, some of them might do a better kangaroo than you and a better emu, but it's not about them. He said, you connect with those old ones and remember them and you'll dance perfectly for them. He said, you never have to worry about what other people think if you do the right thing by them. And that's what dance is about. It's us connecting with what's important and not worrying about what people think about us. And that's life, that's a metaphor. So that's what this dance is about. So this is a dance in my language, Gadung language. It's a farewell dance. So what it means in English is that we've been together. You're all my friends, which means I can borrow $20 after this gig. <laughs> and then, you know, that's all right, that's all good. So in, in, in English it says, we're friends and so we're now parting and I'm crying, but I'm not going to be sad forever because wherever you may go, my spirit is walking with you. So while I'm doing that bit, you'll hear me just singing all sorts of lingo. You're doing what's called a stomp, yep, and you're clapping your hands like that and all the crowd's going to clap as well, yep. Not yet, no, we haven't started, I haven't said go yet. Everyone's so keen to dance. So that's the sad bit. So you're going, oh, I don't want to leave, but my heart... And, and you guys are joining in the dance. But then you'll hear me say, Dunyua. Everyone say, Dunyua. Dunyua, that's my totem, that's the pelican. And this is the important part of the dance and song because there's always a learning. So you're going to turn into pelicans, beautiful pelicans, way up in the sky, soaring high. Now, when you see that pelican in the sky, do you think that's, that pelican is stressed? <laughs> no. no, he's got stillness, or she. They're up there floating around, really happy. 
So this is my gift to everybody. When you get really, really stressed, think about this song and then close your eyes and imagine that pelican and you're it flying up in the sky, way, way up and just feeling that stillness. And when you're ready, look down and look at the problem that's stressing you out. If you're way up in the sky and you're really feeling contented and at peace, how, how big is that problem? And that's called context, because they never are. So think about the pelican. So I'm going to go Dunyara several times and you're going to be floating around very carefully because we don't want to get sued. But then when I go, ha, you're going to land. So you're going to do this several times. But if you're really athletic, you can do a landing shake a leg. <laughs> and we, we, do, we normally do it three verses, one for the father, one for the mother, one for the spirit answers, but I don't have still time for my colleagues. So we're just going to do it twice just so people can really enjoy the experience. So the dancers, don't worry about all the people watching and taking videos and all that stuff. Putting up on social media. Just enjoy it. Ready? <laughs> Slow. Slow. Uh, uh, it's stillness. Not like, let's get it over with. They're not listening. Gentle. That's it. You can clap hard, just go slow. That's it. Yerky, yerky. Not what you Now you're pelicans. Ha! Jump! Ha! Ha! You're landing back on the water. Ha! 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 Yeriki, Yeriki, stomp. Not wadunyao. Go run, Ekuba. Yokoliana. Don't you ride, Pelicans? Don't you ride? Don't you ride? Don't you ride? Now, a big shake leg. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. This session was recorded live as part of Byron Writers Festival 2022. You can find other recorded talks and discussions from the festival on our website, byronwritersfestival.com forward slash digital.